The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. All right, once again, I just want to welcome you guys. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at TBC, and just glad to be on this stage, just hanging out with you guys. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 4, uh, is where we'll be looking at today. This is our last uh, message in our series that we've done all summer, a new chapter, and uh, we've just been looking at different chapters of Scripture, just ones that are pretty common, but going a little deeper into each one. So if you missed any of them, they're online, you can go check them out. Uh, you can fast forward, maybe listen on um, multiple speeds on mine just because uh, uh, some of these other guys have communicated in maybe a clearer way. I don't know. Uh, But the idea here today is that we do not lose heart. Uh, There's uh, this passage when when I was thinking about, I was even talking to my dad and uh, sometimes before uh, a sermon I get to talk with him and I I tell him what I'm I'm getting ready to talk about and what God's kind of has planned for the passage and he gives me some great insights. He's been a pastor for over 40 years, so it's, and he's still going strong at like 75 years old. It's just crazy to see uh, what God's doing through him and has done, but he gives me some insight, and uh, sometimes it's unsolicited, you know, he just kind of throws it in there because he can't help but talk about scripture, that's just what he does. And so he's talking about 2 Corinthians, and I told him the past, and he said, it's, what's interesting to me is if you look at 1 Corinthians, uh, it's more theological, it's, it's biblical, it's practical, it's uh, these steps and how to carry out uh, carry yourself as a Christian. And then if you look in 2 Corinthians, it's much more personal. It's a personal letter. It's him bearing his heart, him being Paul, the writer, bearing his heart and, and really telling the people uh, what they need to hear, sometimes in a very graphic way or illustrative way. And it's just fascinating to watch how Paul does that. And so Paul is trying to encourage uh, the believers here in this passage to not lose heart. And uh, he says it actually twice in the chapter, uh, in verse one, and then further down, and we'll see. But uh, when it comes to losing heart in our own lives, there's various triggers that maybe cause us to be tempted to lose heart. Just thinking about some of them, maybe you have uh, difficult children, or or just we call them children. Uh, you know, maybe uh, you have some difficulty at work, or or financial problems, or or maybe marital issues that you're struggling with, maybe anxiety and worry, or, or maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe college students or, or middle school or whatever high school have some overbearing parents or, or maybe, unfortunately, disinterested parents. Uh, maybe you have physical or mental struggles. Uh, maybe just the simple state of our world that you live in today, that we live in, uh, can cause you to lose heart. There's so many lists. I mean, we can fill pages of things that cause us to lose heart. But I bet you most of our things don't compare to what Paul went through, right? If you know anything about his history, we're going to get into it a little bit later in the, in the time together, that Paul, of anybody probably in this room, had more reasons, and he even says, I have more reasons, uh, than to lose heart than anyone else. And so... What's great is that he didn't lose heart. He encourages the people of Corinth not to lose heart. His strength to to persevere, excuse me, his strength to persevere did not come from within, meaning just himself, but it came from within because he had the power of the Spirit. He had Jesus. It was what he possessed 
that caused him to not lose heart. So let's look at three different points in the topic here of not losing heart. First of all, we're looking at the fact that we have an amazing ministry. In verse one through six, he says, therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways where you refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So here it is. He lays it out in the first six verses, the fact that we have this amazing ministry. And if you look at the word therefore, we always have to see when we see that, we look back at what was said before because these aren't natural breaks in chapters that he wrote. He wrote a letter. They just broke it up later. So we look behind it in chapter three and see, well, what is this ministry we have? He says, you have a ministry in verse one. Well, what in the world is it? Well, if you go back to chapter three and you read six through 18, We don't have time to do all that. But if you go back there, you see it's the ministry of the Spirit. It's the ministry of God at work in the believer's heart. And that's the ministry we have. So it's three three, uh, aspects to that ministry. Ministry of transformation, ministry of freedom, and the ministry of mercy. The transformation that comes from the Spirit's work in your life, the freedom that breaks strongholds and power on your life and sinful temptation and and addiction, and then the ministry of mercy we serve out of mercy that we've received, not out of anything good in us. 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17, if you go there, you'll actually be able to see all the reasons why uh, that Paul wasn't qualified to be a servant of God's. But he lists those things and he's like, look, I was this, I was a persecutor, I hated Christians, I hunted them down, I threw them in jail and all these things, but he received mercy. And out of that mercy, he in turn showed mercy and had this amazing ministry. Verse two, we see that Paul had some people in mind. He kind of writes some biting words here. You look at verse two. He's like, renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways, refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's words. He's, he's saying renounce and refuse, pretty bold words here. You know, he's referring here to false teachers. He's encountering these false teachers. Specifically, these false teachers were known as Judaizers at this time. And these guys would go around and they would impose Jewish law onto Gentile believers and try to tell them, you have to practice this law and obey these commands and be a Christian on the other, on the other side. So you have to be both. The word Judaizer comes from a Greek verb meaning to live according to Jewish customs. This word appears in Galatians 2.14 where Paul describes how he confronted Peter for forcing Gentile Christians to Judaize or to live as Jews as well. But he also adds in there at the end of that verse two, he adds in everyone's conscience. Is that's really interesting that he adds that in. And basically I think he, we know that he was accused to be a false prophet as well. 
And so he's trying to help these readers understand of this letter that they can understand, they can be confident that his conscience is clear that he is not a false teacher and that the people with him are not false teachers as well, that they can trust the source. But going back to renounce and refuse, you think about those strong words. He's saying here, we don't mess with the word of God. We don't play around with it. We don't make it just what we want it to be. Warren Wearsby put it this way. If people treated other books the way that they treat the Bible, they would never learn anything. We just tear out this section because we don't like it or we tear this one out because culture says it's different now and we do this and that to the word of God and the reality is God inspired this word and it's timeless. Culture doesn't get to say what this word says. And so we don't butcher it. We don't take it and apply it where we want it. We don't let it, in, we don't inform it, it informs us. We don't try to change it to fit our agenda. We don't let culture determine what is acceptable and what to leave out. Verse three and four, he talks about being veiled. It goes back to, again, chapter three, verse 13 and 16, and it's a similar concept in Romans one. There's this veiling, this blinding, Jesus talks about veiling in terms of blindness and Paul does as well here. Jesus talks about it in John 12 where he's blinding their eyes or, or Matthew 15 where blind guides are leading the blind and uh, John 14 where the world cannot see him or know him. So this idea of blinding. So here he's talking about the God of this world blinding people from seeing the truth. So the God of this world blinds their eyes. One of Satan's deepest passions is to keep those who don't know Jesus in the dark. If he can keep them in the dark and, and consume them with thoughts of darkness and, and darkness all around them and evil spirits that we don't re regularly talk about in church but that are alive and well among us even now, if he can keep them in the dark, then he has won. And so he talks about this darkness that's prevalent. Unfortunately, this darkness often comes from people who are representatives, they call themselves representatives of Jesus. Judaizers, but we can even apply it today to many false teachers who tell us a gospel that's a little bit different than the gospel that's found in this word. They use all really good words and, and even convicting things, but they point to something else, which is that's something we're gonna get into a little bit later, which is the idea that it's about you and what you get. It's about how you perform and how God can make your life better and how you can actually uh, succeed and all these things that the gospel really in, in its deepest part is not about you being successful just in your, of yourself. But false teachers are so prevalent and the darkness is all around us. But the great news is that he gives us here is that Jesus gave us the victory over this darkness. John 12, 31 and 32 says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, Jesus, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He's won the victory already. He has broken the power of darkness over sin. His light outweighs the darkness, and we can see that in verse five and six. Again, this gospel isn't of ourselves. In verse five, we can't argue or talk people into their faith. We can definitely pray for God to move in their relationship, 
but it's not of ourselves. It's not our own invention. You can't logic someone into heaven. You can do what you're called to do, which is to speak, but it's the spirit that moves. As pastors at TBC, Chase and Dave and myself, as teaching pastors, we come together and think about and pray about what do we have to share with the body of Christ, but we don't come up with ourselves. We don't come to God with all of our ideas and say, God bless these ideas. He informs our ideas and we follow. We don't come up with scripture. and I mean, we don't come up with all these creative things and, uh, you know, catchy sayings and alliterations all over the place and, and say, all right, where's the scripture to go with that? No, we see God's word, we see for what it says, and we try our best to communicate it by the power of the spirit, and that's what it's about. We focus on the light. Paul, he contrasts this veiling and blindness in verse three and four, and then in the verse six, he contrasts it with the light that shines out of the darkness, even quoting Genesis 1. And he's saying here, this light outshines the darkness. It makes me think of an old school kid's song uh, that said, this little light of mine, you know, that title. And I'm not gonna sing it for you or you'd probably walk out. But the idea was, you know, I'm gonna let this light shine. I'm not hiding it. I'm letting this light shine and it dispels the darkness. The guy that we saw in our video, Ryan Murphy, I think he's in the room today and, and, uh, and at this hour, but it, he's been a resident for us, serving us all this year, and I've uh, been serving so faithfully. And when I uh, heard a little bit of his testimony this past Wednesday, it just made me think about, man, uh, Shannon pointed it out, Shannon Seward, that he grew up in church. He grew up a Second Baptist, came to Sea Life, uh, did all four years at Sea Life, was around the light in his life, around all of it, even professing faith and, and being involved in the things. But it took him going over to Thailand, being in a dark place, for God to really work in his heart and he actually really came to faith out of the darkness. And oftentimes, even in my own life, growing up as a pastor kid, I can relate where it's like, we often get almost numb to the light that's around us, it's just there. And we don't really encounter the darkness, but oftentimes it's the darkness where obviously we find the light, the true light, the powerful light. So we have an amazing ministry, but we also have a priceless treasure in verse seven. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So he talks about death. It sounds kind of morbid, some of this section. It sounds kind of depressing. But when we think about this concept of jars of clay, there's an author named Tamara Chamberlain. She gives great insight into this reference of jars of clay. She gives three aspects of a jar of clay that would have come to mind of a first century reader of this letter. First of all, back then, jars of clay were commonplace. Jars of clay were fragile, and jars of clay are made by hand. So they were used for cooking utensils, even sometimes used as a, 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 a toilet. They were commonplace instruments. They're fragile. 
They signify weakness. They were cheap. And then they were made by hand. They didn't get to tell the potter what they were named. And so, like even this right here, I was thinking about doing something else that was actually nice looking, but this was perfect. This is in my front yard. I went out this morning and it was in the flower bed. Anybody have one like this that just has no purpose? All this had was dirt. And you have it there and it's just sitting there for literally years. Please do something with me. I'm, I'm useful, but no. And even when I picked it up, it cracked. And it was just like, man, I didn't even crack it myself. It's like this picture perfect for this illustration. So uh, this pot, it's ugly. It's, it's really not very useful. It has a crack in it. It's really not very attractive. And it's not like, oh, wow, let's use that pot. But in reality, what is being described here, you are jars of clay. The reality is it's a beautiful picture of who we are in Christ because the pot wasn't the big deal. The big deal was what was in the pot. And for us as a jar of clay, we're not the big deal. What's the big deal? The treasure inside of us, the light so just like the, even these pots, these clay pots, they would put old scriptures that were translated and written down. They found them in caves, like preserved, like just magically preserved, you know, by this pot in this cracked pot, this chipped pot, and they're in this cave and they find some of the earliest writings we have of scripture perfectly preserved. It was about what was inside. It wasn't what the actual pot was. And it's really reassuring for all of us Now, yes, you want to be healthy and you want to be in shape. That's great. But it's not all about this physical vessel. And we're going to see that in a minute. It's reality. So here we are. In Isaiah 64, 8, he says, Now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. So maybe a, a reflection question even now to pause on is, do you consider yourself potter or clay? Are you the master of your own clay in some weird, morbid way? Can your hands actually craft you? Can you make yourself into something that's amazing? Can you actually do that? The reality is we often live our lives that way. It's not about the clay or the pot that determines its worth. It's what's inside. And this slaps in the face the culture of today that's me, myself, and I. I am worth something. I can do it. I'm amazing. Uh, You know, all these things, you know, it's timeless, this whole idea, but it's all about me and what I'm worth. And, And yes, I should be this way and you should treat me this way. And I'm not talking about people just letting people run all over you, but the idea is oftentimes we get consumed by our and what we look like to others around us. But Paul just crushes that. These jars of clay are actually guaranteed trouble. Look at verse seven to 10. Perplexed, persecuted, uh, you know, all these things driven to despair. How uplifting is that? Here, Church of Corinth, here's what all you're going through and what you're about to go through. He smashes that idea of all success in the world's eyes for us. Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's interesting when we think about that, we all suffer and some of you have suffered and are suffering. We don't dismiss that. We acknowledge the suffering and and see it for what it is, but we don't wallow in it. 
an old school word of the idea of just sitting in it and just being like, woe is me type stuff, right? We don't just just focus on the suffering, but we focus on the one who is with us through the suffering. And it changes our perspective. And we see that, oh man, we look at what Paul's been through. If you wanna see about suffering, you turn over to 2 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 23. Paul's like an early rapper here, if you just read this. Listen to what he says. He says in verse 23, I've been through far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who had a reason to lose heart? <laughs> Not you, according to Paul. I mean, look at what he's been through. But he's saying, look, here's how I don't lose heart. I carry the death of Jesus with me. And it sounds really morbid if there's not any hope there. If Jesus stayed buried, it would be a really weird religion we follow, a really weird Christianity. Just this smelly, dead body we're carrying around on our backs, right? What a weirdo. I don't want to be part of that. But no, we have the risen Savior, We have the risen Savior. We carry that death of Christ on the cross, but we don't carry his dead body. We carry the risen Savior with us, the light of the world. And so we have this opportunity to carry the cross. It's not something decorative. We even have some decorations over there with crosses on them. But you might have a decoration as a cross. You might wear one around your neck. You might have one tattooed on your body. It's kind of interesting because if you really think about what Jesus is saying is a modern day version of this is you're carrying your electric chair, right? Who wants to put an electric chair on their wall? That's weird. But the idea is this. We often like make something that was meant to help us focus on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and as something decorative when in reality we're carrying the death of Jesus with us. But we're also carrying the life of Jesus with us. So it makes us think about the cross differently. But death in verse 11 and 12 brings life. I love this concept that... I'm not a a botanist or anybody even thinking, obviously, of uh, growing things. But but the idea is that there is a concept of controlled and planned burning. And some some has been uncontrolled, obviously, this summer all over Bell County. But uh, some of the burning, uh, like I went on a safari in Rwanda and I saw these sections of burnout woods. And you talk to the guide and he's like, yeah, they come out here with a blowtorch and they do that on purpose. I'm like, what's that for? And then if you look really closely, you actually see sprouts coming up. And this controlled burning actually gets rid of all the junk that's on the ground and allows the opportunity for new nutrients to come up and to feed something new. And this is the idea of this death. This is the idea that death brings life. And we see that in nature and we get a great picture of that. 
that without all the junk being removed, without all the mess being removed through fire and, and us being able to have these fiery trials and difficulties without it being removed, there's no room for growth. There's no room for something new. And it made me think of a, a story of uh, a young lady who was in our youth group pretty soon after I came here to this church almost 16 years ago, over 16 years ago. And so this girl was, uh, her parents were going through this horrible divorce. And it was just a tough situation. And uh, I'm thinking about an eighth grade girl. And on my way into a worship conference up at Baylor, I'm in a parking lot and she calls me and I answer the phone. I'm thinking, oh, this girl, uh, she probably wants some prayer or like, hey, keep me in your prayers. I know I'm going through something. But instead, her trial, her difficulty led to her being all about community and leading a Bible study. And she's calling me to ask for Bible study resources as an eighth grade girl. I'm like, she's going through it this fire in her life, this almost a literal death in the family in a way, metaphorically. And so we're thinking, wow, oh, she wants prayer. No, she just wants a way to share the light of Jesus in this difficulty. And the weird thing is I hang up with her after giving some resources. I go into the auditorium and the first song that they sing is a song uh, called Beautiful Things. We're gonna sing a part of it at the end of the service, but the idea is that from the dust, from the mess, from the difficulty comes this sprout. And I'm like, listening to that, I'm like, oh, wow. I literally just got off the phone with something beautiful that God is doing in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of pain, in the midst of fire. And I had to tell her later, I'm like, listen to this song, it's amazing. This is like what God showed me you are going through. Maybe some of you are doing the same. So this light shines in darkness. This fire sometimes, this pain brings renewal. And lastly, we possess a confident faith. Verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. Bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal way of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal so we possess this confident faith see he says here in verse 13 again he focuses on unity and a group of people he says we all have the same spirit this unity inducing word that says we all are through this together as believers Paul was confident in this resurrection power in verse 13 and 14. And he even says, look, this belief leads to speaking. He quotes David in Psalm 116.10. David says in his affliction, this is what David says, I believe, therefore I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. He is recognizing God as his, his father. He's recognizing the king. And even in his affliction, people trying to kill him, even in that affliction, David is saying, I believe and I'm speaking about it. So here's a challenge, maybe something to focus on, to pause on, is this challenge, this idea that 
Is it a natural progression for you to go from belief to speak? To be able to go from seeing something that is in you and actually sharing about it. Now I understand that some are quieter than others. I did not get the quiet gene. My family doesn't have any quiet genes as my wife can attest to. Sometimes, a lot of times it gets me in trouble. But uh, the idea is this, just because you may be an introvert and you may have this uh, shyness about you doesn't mean that you're not called to speak. There's a false statement that has floated around for decades that says, uh, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. And it's even been attributed to Francis of Assisi and uh, the reality is he never said that, number one. And the second is that statement is bad. I'm sorry if you've ever used it. I used it and I had to repent because the reality is we're called to use words. Someone can see my good works, that's great. I'm all about serving. I'm the local outreach pastor here. I want people working and serving, but if all you do is serve, how is it that anybody knows why you're serving? You could just be wanting to be nice. You could, maybe your mom told you to do it, I don't know. Maybe you feel guilty because people are poor and you wanna go help them. We have to speak, and it's a natural progression. He says here, because of my faith, I speak. David, back in his struggle, because of my faith, I speak. It's just a natural thing. So here's a question for you. Does your confident belief lead you to audibly share the gospel? Does it lead you to pursue gospel conversation? Do you regularly invite people simply into fellowship here? I know sometimes we kind of take for granted that everybody in Texas goes to church, right? Yeah, that's what you believe, right? No, they don't. There's a lot of people, especially coming out of the pandemic, that have kind of rejected church or got so used to being on the couch they just don't want to get up anymore. I don't know, but the reality is, for us, this is a great opportunity, this time period right now, to speak, to share, to invite You may be too shy to articulate your faith, but you can't be too shy to just say, hey, come to church with me today. Let's get lunch after. It's pretty simple. But what are we called to? We're called to speak. Paul's confidence showed itself in an attitude as well of thanksgiving, verse 15 and 16. He says we do not lose heart, and it's an interesting uh, thing he says here. Uh, verse 16, some of you can relate to this, though our outer self is wasting away. I turned 48 last week. Uh, yeah, I'm old. I'm, no, I'm not old, am I? Some of you are like, oh, you're a young whippersnapper. But uh, whatever, uh, the reality is I'm definitely not young. And my body's telling me that because I go run or I go play basketball. I was playing in uh, Rwanda back in June and man, something hit me. And uh, it wasn't like the ball or anybody's knee. It was just something. And it was like pain. It was right here in my hip. And the worst thing you can do, I know you already know this, but don't ever Google any pain you have because it's going to lead to death. But the reality is that's what happens. And so I'm, I'm Googling, oh, what could this be? And then it got like, I'm, you know, away from the States and I read like, oh, and if it's bursitis, you know, you get this infection, could go down your leg, you know, you could lose your leg, all these things. And I'm not usually a worrier, but I don't know why, it just kind of caught me. And so I get, uh, my buddy uh, is an ortho guy, I get back and I'm like, hey man, can I just 
talk to you for a second about what's going on. And I Googled it, and they just laugh, right? Those doctors just laugh at you. And uh, I Googled it, and it says bursitis. It goes, yeah, that actually is probably what it is, but I would just say you're getting old. And I said, thanks. Uh, but he followed it up and was like, I'm your same age and I am too. But you know, I just pushed through it, whatever. But the idea is, man, what a perfect thing. Your outer body is wasting away. You young people here, uh, I, I waited so long to say this. Now I'm 48 and I can say this. Your body's wasting away too. It'll come, don't worry. Uh, <laughs> but the reality is this. This is what's great about it. This verse is for all of us. Our outer body, our outer self is wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed day by day. In the faith, you can be youthful and younger and share your faith the older you get. Some of the most vibrant people I know in the faith are people that have been around that faith for a long period. Now, I mentioned my dad, but others in this room that I look around and see that are just excited about their faith, involved in serving, sharing their faith, are elderly people that are young in God's eyes because this faith is just bright and exciting and strong. It's so odd to me, the paradox, when I think about it, that there's many young people that are actually atrophied and and dying as elderly people inside because their faith is weak. And then you see some who are just vibrant because of the gospel and the transforming power It's just an amazing thing. It's also comforting because, you know, when you get old, you want words like this. So it produces thanksgiving, a heart of thanksgiving. Romans 8, 28 says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So even in our suffering, those sufferings aren't wasted. So he finishes up in verse 17 and 18 in a confident statement that God's work gave him a future hope, an eternal perspective. When I think about an eternal weight of glory, I think about one of the most powerful uh, experiences I've ever had in my life where Pastor Gary, who was a longtime pastor here for over 37 years and a faithful minister of the gospel here, called us into his room in the hospital right before he died, us as pastors. He calls us into the room and one by one gives us a big hug and gives us encouragement. It wasn't this woe is me type attitude. It wasn't wallowing in the difficulty he'd been through for the past five or six years. It was this encouragement and excitement and this eternal weight of glory saying, I am looking forward to something and about to step into something that's way better than anything this world has to offer. And as he gave us those big bear hugs, even in his weakened state, which he literally passed away the next day. As he said these things to me, it automatically sticks in my head every time I think about this, eternity. It's something amazing. An eternal perspective just changes your whole outlook on life. The suffering, the difficulty, the pain, the struggles, all are real. We don't discount them, but they're put in proper perspective because we see an eternal weight of glory. Paul was confident that there was so much more than what we see and experience here on this earth. It's a pretty common theme as we wrap it up with these two verses. Hebrews 11.1, 1, 
Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We have an eternal perspective that gives us something different than the world sees. And you get to speak about it. You have the privilege to open your mouth in the workplace, at school, wherever it is, in your community, to speak about it and share it. So, questions to finish with. Do you recognize the amazing ministry of the Spirit in your life? Do you see yourself as a jar of clay holding an immense, timeless treasure? Are you ready and able to share this treasure? Are you confident in the faith? Maybe do you want a confident faith? Maybe you're here and maybe you don't know Jesus. You've heard all about blinding and you're like, yeah, I can kind of relate to that. Kind of sucked into the things of the world, but Jesus has something better for you. Jesus has an eternal perspective for you. Jesus has something exciting. And so for us today, maybe just as we transition to communion, maybe you just want to take some time where you're at and pray and talk to God and just say, God, give me something different. Maybe confess to him. There's, when we approach communion, 1 Corinthians 11, 28 and 29 says, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. So maybe just take a moment here. You know, from what we've heard from God's word, maybe conviction has come on your life. Maybe even this time right now, conviction is coming of a sin that is continuing in your life and that you need to confess. Do that before we take this communion. Do that before we focus on this shed blood in the body of Christ. So take some time to pray and talk to God right now. God, there are things in our lives that are struggles we face daily, maybe even addictions we have, Lord, and Lord, we confess those to you. Maybe those in here that don't know you, that even now can trust you, know that you are a great Savior, the great light that can shine in their darkness. Lord, as we consider this time, their focus on your body that was broken, your blood that was shed, Lord, fill us with your spirit to encounter you in a new way. We thank you for what you've done and are doing and will do in our lives. As we come to the bread, the time to focus, we've allowed God to examine our hearts. Here's the time to think about the body 
that was literally broken for you, this body that was, the stripes on his back, the beatings that he took, the, the beard that was ripped out, the spitting, the crown of thorns, this body that was unrecognizable. So as we think about this, if you have this thought and these moments where you're considering God's son being abused like this, we just really want to take the time to thank God for what he's done. And Luke 22, 19 states, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We think about the body that was broken, but we also consider the blood. And as we consider the blood that was shed on the cross, we realize and remember that it was only one. There was no one else alive at that time whose blood would satisfy. But because of the perfect perfect sacrifice, the blood of Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. We have this hope of eternity. Without this blood, Paul couldn't write this chapter. Without this blood, Paul would only write about the difficulty. He would have stopped at being perplexed, abandoned, persecuted, shipwrecked, left for dead, that's all he could write about. It'd be interesting reading, but not very hopeful. But because of the shed blood, he had a different hope. Luke 22, 20 says, and likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. As we wrap things up today, I'd ask you to stand and we're gonna sing part of that song that I referenced in our time together. Just let this be a final focus on the body and the blood of Jesus.